0: Hello and welcome to Kier Here, a podcast where I interview weirdo artists, writers, and makers about what they do. I'm your host, Keir Adrian Gray. You can sign up for my newsletter to receive new episodes and other strange goodies straight to your inbox at keir.substack.com. That's K-I-E-R.substack.com. Our guest for today's episode is Tara McGowan-Ross. She is an urban Mi'kmaq multidisciplinary artist. She is the host of John and Quarterly's Indigenous Literatures Book Club and a critic of independent and experimental theater for Broadway World. Her poetry has been published in Best Canadian Poetry and the collection's Girth and Scorpion Season. Her debut book length collection of nonfiction, Nothing Will Be Different was published in 2021 by Dundurn Press. Welcome to the show, Tara. Thanks for having me, Kier. One thing that makes your book completely unique is that it has a soundtrack. Each chapter is named after a song, and I was listening to them as I went through, and there was this unexpected effect where the music made it so much easier for me to visualize the scenes as they unfolded. How did this idea to incorporate music into your memoir arise?
1: That's a great question. Yeah, it started off actually as a, um, I think, probably kind of a crutch, like a creative crutch, you know, like I was like, like I was listening to music to get like revved up and psyched to like write whatever I was writing. And uh, I was sort of lapsing in and out of various songs and early drafts of each of the, each of the, uh, the essays did have like song lyrics in them um but uh but and then over time those would get edited out and um and there there was a different version of the of the collection that had a different take on the titles like the titles instead had these like super um academic sounding like essay titles basically um and but it just it just seemed a bit snootier and like less like like it just it just seemed a lot less like approachable and there's a there's a there's a constant there's a thread that that goes through it that um that made me want to like bring the, the the song titles back as like which were really just supposed to be working titles when I first started writing it um but uh where like throughout my life I've like one of the biggest ways that I I feel like I I like establish intimacy with people is like trading music back and forth so like there's a few times in the book where like I'm either sitting next to somebody with like a laptop open and we're like we're thro- showing each other songs on YouTube or like we're trading playlists back and forth or like burning each other mix CDs or whatever and like for me that's like that's like I'm getting a peek into their brain I'm getting a peek into their heart you know like and it's it's like that's like really that's like real intimacy so I wanted to have that dynamic
0: play out in the uh, in the book as well that's me There's Yeah. There's like the intimacy of like making a mixtape or a playlist for someone. And yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that it was originally just for the rough draft, but I'm glad it made it into the final version. Um, I was wondering if you could do a, uh, reading for us. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I was reading over, um,
1: some of your, podcast, which uh, sorry, sorry, substack, which is really great. I think the content's really good. Um, and I was relating with a lot of it thinking about, um, the, uh, the sort of transition out of like really intense social justice stuff. And, um, so I, I, I picked this one, which I, I think like, I should probably say like preface, it was comes with a content warning for like, um, for like, uh, an in, like, like an intense moment of like, of like sexual trauma that is like, not actually like sexual violence. So, um, but, uh, but one that I had to like think about a lot. So this is from the king of carrot flowers, part one by neutral milk hotel. I had been so convinced that Tim was a rest stop. I was young, sexy, brilliant. I would have a long and exciting life full of many lovers. I had been reticent to be really vulnerable with him even as he was uniquely vulnerable with me. He had been my safety bet my consolation prize. I was the goddess and he was my priest. This is what I told myself silently as I said I wanted to marry him. This is what I told myself while I gave my entire body to him and I saw the incredible genius things he could do with it. Meanwhile, he had been growing up. The poverty of independence had shaved off his extra pounds. Odd jobs and manual labor had stuck, stacked muscle onto him, cut his jaw like a plank of oak. Out of stress, anxiety, A deep sense of sadness I never really respected him enough to try to understand. He had taken up smoking, and despite my family's cancer history and the stern warnings from my father, I still think smoking is hot. He got a better haircut and thrifted some pants that fit. One day after he left me before we had sex on the living room floor, I was stunned to see that he was beautiful, fit, rugged, fashionable, talented, and completely done with my shit. (laughs) Oh. After, sorry, you want to keep, keep that going? <laughs> uh, after we started kissing, but before we had sex, Tim tried to do the right thing. We were broken up, and we were still roommates, and this was a bad idea. I thought for a minute, we're friends. I ventured, we do fun things together, right? He looked at me, skeptical, ethical, but also nineteen, right? I just think this is like you know a fun thing we could do together. I said once again, pulling up my huge teenage girl drag voice, syrupy and valley girl and innocent and stupid, you know, just as friends. This was, of course, a con. I could feel our love between us, this unbreakable bond. It had been there the whole time we were broken up, but I'd been so pissed off I'd been ignoring it. The dumping had been a blip after all. I was going to annoy all of our roommates when we announced uh, we had gotten back together, but it would be in an eye-rolling smiley way before they handed us a beer and clapped us in the back and said, of course you did, you crazy kids. Tim and Tara forever. As soon as he felt it, he would understand that there was absolutely no version of his life that made sense without me in it. This was a crisis of faith. It happens to every man of God. After, sticky and exhausted and still bubbling like some kind of unstable landmass, I lay patiently with my face in my hands, gazing at him adoringly, and I waited for him to say it. I waited him to be like, I'm so stupid. Of course I love you. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. It never came. A few days later, we did it again. And then he got dressed without looking at me and said goodbye and went to band practice. He was treating me like a friend who he was also sleeping with, taking me at my word like an idiot. Why couldn't he see the complex, silent, unexpressed desires that I actually had? I had to dial it up. I began a systematic campaign of emotional terrorism, usually while completely wasted. Bending my life towards the singular goal of manipulating my ex back into loving me, and very importantly, without having a single adult conversation about it. I went in a crash diet, wore slinky clothes around the house. I couldn't have one interaction with him without dropping some thinly veiled attempt to make him feel bad. It got very, very weird. One night, I went out on a date with a customer from the cafe. The guy was my type. Smart, friendly, funny, not, you know, handsome enough to be a real emotional threat. A Tim type a safe guy me and my customer crush at a one night stand that I thought would that I would first identify as extraordinarily bad sex later identify as sexual assault and then even later identify as a well-meaning but clueless man who was trying and failing to have safe and consensual sex with a teenage girl who had only ever had penetrative sex with one person and could not communicate about her needs or desires to save her life I left his apartment the next morning at the crack of dawn after failing to sleep bleeding and wondering where it all went wrong I crawled into bed with Tim I needed to come home now I really needed all of this to be over. I didn't know how to ask for what I needed, so I just put his hands on me. He was into it until he saw the blood. He was disgusted and I was mute with shame. I didn't tell him what happened. I couldn't, it wouldn't have changed anything anyway. I went to my room, curled up into a ball on my bed and I let myself cry because I knew it was over. I was sure then that he would never touch me again. Finally, I was right about something.
0: I'll finish then. Thank you. That excerpt like gets to the heart of what I think is so powerful about this memoir. And there were these places where I was like cringing in recognition because before learning communication skills and working on Being able to communicate about emotions and even understand them. Manipulation is a tool that I think a lot of young people use. And I was wondering, like, what it felt like to look back on those moments as an adult and then write about them for public consumption.
1: Yeah, like, I think it's really interesting, actually. The process is crazy because it's like it's like um, it makes me think a lot writing memoir makes me think a lot about what constitutes a lie because like you you can't just put everything all of the facts into the you know into the book you can't just put like everything that happened exactly as it happened like you know time stamped exactly because that would it would be really boring and it would be like four million pages long and it just like no one would want to read it there'd be no story there. Like creative nonfiction is like taking your life and that's like the raw material and then you like make something out of it. You like carve stuff away and you like mold thing you know and you don't like change the facts of the matter but you do like explode things and like frame things and like turn people who like are human beings into characters which like and you you have to for the story and like um so and like and i had to think a lot about like what kind of protagonist i wanted to be you know like i was like writing a, a story about myself so i'm like am i a hero am i a villain like you know like am i the like it like which of these things am i and i think there's like throughout the book there's a lot of me grappling with that about like what like am i am i the hero or am i the villain of this situation um And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, I think what I think is really interesting is like, you can sit down to write about like the worst thing that ever happened to you. Like, you know, it'd be like the time that people were the meanest to you ever, it seems like. And then like, but like, if you actually start reflecting on it with like a bit of, a bit of like distance and perspective, like, and you're trying to tell a full, complete story that is like compelling where all the characters are fully realized human beings. Like what I found was that like, the, the, just the story was a m- lot more complicated than even like I thought it was, you know, like when I sat down to write it. Um, so, um, those that's a lot of very unorganized thoughts in response to that, but yeah, it's just, it's very illuminating. Um, trying to sum up your own life.
0: <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Because you're right. Like there are so many like creative decisions that had have to be made. I like how you said that, Real human beings have to become characters. Um, that 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 brings me to another thing, which is kind of making meaning out of our hardships and difficulties. And one thing that I see in your book is that, like it your book shows how this is a double-edged sword. You reach a point where, you realize you have a need to put down some of these stories that they're weighing on you, that they're a burden. And I was wondering whether it was a slow process to put those down or was there an epiphany or a suddenness to kind of stepping out of feeling defined by these horrible things that had happened?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably... um... I think it's kind of both. Cause I think it's sort of this, like, like, yeah, to, to sort of define what's actually going on. There's sort of like um, the, you know, the section of the, of the story is talking about this, um, uh, you know, like a moment of like, of like really intense emotional breakdown where I'm real, like, I'm realizing that like, that like I, I I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the narrative of my life and I'm thinking like, maybe it's actually not serving me to be constantly like hashing and rehashing these same things, which are like, you know, like very genuine, real traumas and like you know like intense things that actually did happen but like maybe it's actually not serving me to be like constantly rehashing them and like living them in the present and I think that like I think that like that kind of decision can happen and be like extremely liberating in the moment but then it's the kind of thing where like like I think in mo- like, like most things in life like it's all a becoming you know like it's all like like life is just a, a bunch of separate becomings. so like there will be more times in the future where like that that story about my life gets like recontextualized and like more things get added to it. And I like, think about it in a different way. And I have to still remember the process of like picking it up for a second and like looking at it and being like, Oh, interesting. And then putting it back down again, you know, like, and like trying not to like get super wrapped up in the, in my, in my own stories again. um, If that makes sense. So like, I'm thinking like specifically about like, you know, um, turning trauma into a narrative and the process of integrating trauma as opposed to, just like living in a perpetual state of like reliving trauma basically um and like what happens is like in a in a moment of a like in a moment of rupture when like trigger when like when like trauma memories are like retriggered or something sometimes you like have to like go down back into something you've put away again to like to be like oh interesting that's like a new piece that i like didn't know was there and like i'm thinking about it in a new way um but i'm trying to think about it in this very like buddhist kind of way of just being like thinking and like processing as a tool and like tools are great and like you need them but like you don't need them all the time you don't need all the same tools all the time like sometimes then like like my processing and thinking about my trauma is like a hammer and sometimes you need a screwdriver and something else you know like so it's like and I gotta put it back down every once in a while so yeah Mm
0: -hmm. yeah it's yeah it's almost like it it being the right yeah actually the the tool metaphor is really interesting because yeah it's 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 there and it belongs to you, but you don't have to carry it everywhere you go that's Mm -hmm. that's interesting I like that. Um, One of the most striking threads through this book is the story of you navigating the death of your mother when you were nine years old. And when you heard it would take a miracle to keep her alive, it sounds like you took that as a personal challenge and Mm. prayed as hard as you could to try and make that miracle happen. And I had my own experience of magical thinking intertwining with grief um, and blaming myself when that was in no way possible. And I was wondering, like, do you think there's a better way for us to talk about death with children or is the topic just so big and all consuming that there isn't really a right way to go about it? That's such
1: a great question. Um, Cause yeah, I think what I'm still like, what I'm still interested in as a concept is this idea that um, and like, and like a bit of it is in the book too, that like, sometimes like crazy miraculous things like do happen and like people do like survive these like you know like there's spontaneous remissions and like people like just you know come through with like these like surgeries where there's like a tiny little chance that they were going to survive and like the experimental drug works and like whatever you know like and that like that does happen sometimes but it's so random like it's just so random it's so random that it almost seems not random you know it's like one of those things where like like uh a friend of a friend of mine, like well, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine works in and worked for a while in an oncology ward. And she said that like crazy things would happen. Like just like every once in a while, every once in a long while, a crazy thing, someone would just get better. Like every once in a while, someone would get, someone who did not seem like they were going to get better, would get better. But it never seemed to be the people whose whole prayer group came and prayed in a circle around them. It was like the homeless guy who's like been hooked on fentanyl for like two years, you know, like, it's like that's the guy who like just he didn't expect to like live to 40 let alone like live to 40 and then like get like colon cancer that was like terminal and then live to 40 get colon cancer that was terminal and then survive like it's just like a like a crazy series of events um but like that guy will walk out of there but like you know and like people who are trying everything won't and like um i definitely do think that there's like a there's there's this really good-hearted like there's a a sinister underbelly to this really good-hearted way of explaining a lot of these like big questions to kids which like the ones that I think really like did I think genuine damage to me when I was a kid was these like everything happens for a reason and like you know like and like this is all part of a plan and like that like that like if you pray hard enough and you like you know like good things will happen to you and I'm just like okay so like what does that where does that leave me you know like where does that like leave my family like you know like If like, if, if bad things only happen because you like, aren't good enough and like good things happen when you do all the right things and there's a plan that involves like suffering at this, at this level, then like, what the heck, you know, like, why, like, why am I not like, why am I not God's favorite? You know, like, um, and, uh, so like, and I think that that, I think that that can really mess people up. And I think it is the, the logical conclusion of a lot of that. Like, I really felt God with me, you know, like when I came through this thing and it's like, and the way that like, you know, God was not with all those people who did not come through <laughs> the difficult thing, you know? And like, um, so I, I really felt like I felt, I found a lot of the, there were people who were explaining a lot of these things to me in a way that I think did help. And those are the things that I like clung to, which is like, a lot of it is really just, it's really random. It's like, it's really random and it's really crazy and like life whoa you know like we're on a crazy rock and it's spinning through a a galaxy and like and like the fact that life exists at all is like really random and intense and like and like some people get everyone gets a life and some people's lives are a few minutes long and some of them are a hundred years long and some of them are really happy and some of them are really hard and like it's just kind of random but like we all can be here for each other and like look out for each other and like that's the thing that like that like makes life good, you know, like not whether or not we live to be a hundred years old and never get sick or whatever. Um, it's actually just like how well we treat each other and like how like how well we can look out for each other and like bad things are still gonna happen to people even if they do everything right. And like, that was the thing that actually made me feel better I think, and like made me feel like, cause I think everything else has this like moral weight to it that like, that I, th- I think informed a lot of, a lot of um, negative thinking that I then had to do a lot of work to
0: unravel for a long time <laughs> absolutely it's yeah the idea that there's some like moral rationale between like who lives and who dies is it's shocking <laughs> and it's right I think it can absolutely lead to this like well, then how do I be good? Like what, how do I do that? And, and if everything bad is evidence of being bad, like, I mean, I guess I'm saying, I can see why you ended up going and getting yourself a philosophy degree because that's, (laughs) that's absolutely a lot to work through. And the idea that like the randomness, the chaos, that actually there's, something comforting there that we're we all we can do is sort of try our best treat people as as well as we can and 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 it it almost feels like in the memoir it's like yeah you're navigating like the chaos of the world and trying to see if there are things like solid things to hold on to that can provide a bit of an anchor in that um This is a bit of a meta question, but having written some zines and spoken about certain things like mental health, personally, I have... Been asked some pretty invasive questions, and I was wondering, like, since publishing your memoir, have you gotten the impression that some strangers sort of feel this one-way closeness, or that they kind of open up to you in a surprising way, or feel entitled to certain information?
1: Interesting. Yeah i I don't know if I kind of always have felt. I feel like I just have one of those faces. You know, I feel like I just have one of those like vibes. Like, so I've kind of always felt like there are people like if someone wants to open up to somebody and they meet me, I'm going to, I'm the person they're going to want to open up to. I have, I'm a, just a, I really like people. I'm like a very like gregarious, warm person. I'm a hardcore introvert. So like I get like overwhelmed really easily, but like, but I also like when I am out and about meeting people, I'm, I'm really happy to be doing it. I just like my social battery is like taking, you know, two hits per second, <laughs> just like, like in the process of draining all the time. But like, um, but like, uh, so I kind of already felt that way a little bit. So, but I do th- think there's like a bit of an uptick, tick slightly, but like, I don't know if it really bugs me that much. And it, it hasn't, like, I know that there are like, there are a lot of people who I know who like write specifically about like sex and sexuality a lot who say that they like that th- that's like a thing that they suddenly, suddenly people just felt like like they're like first of all we're besties and second of all I'm going to like start opening up a lot about this thing And I haven't found that felt that quite so much I do think that like often when I meet people who've read the book and then we do like we do like um hit it off was like a level of like there there's like a there's a level of intimacy and like assumed like like when people read something that does something really a lot for them you know like there's like I think there's like a there's like an assumption that um continuing to like talk to me will like will like continue to talk to the writer of whatever they they read that like did that for them will like will give them more of that same thing um and sometimes I'm just like I wrote seven drafts of that book. You know, like it was like it's a very like carefully hewn. Me most of the time, I'm just kind of like, law, law, you know, like I'm just sort of like saying whatever. And like it's not I'm not my best self most of the time. And like that book is like very much my best self, like, you know, like seven versions of my best self, like carefully like edited down or whatever. So um, so I think that's sometimes like a, maybe a miss uh, like a misunderstanding. Um I like, I do think that maybe there's like a little bit of like a people assume that people who are close to me assume that they like assume that we've already we've caught up or whatever and then I'm just like I'm like no I don't know anything about, <laughs> know anything about your life like you know like I actually have no idea what's happening with you um and then um and then also similarly sometimes I do the thing where people are like or like so what have you been up to for the last little bit and I'm like oh did you read the book like I published a book I like I don't really want to explain it again so if you could just read do the do the reading before you come to class that'd be great um so that's definitely a weird social dynamic all of those ones
0: yeah it's almost like there can be this like imbalance right where it's like well the other person hasn't read a written a book that you have been able to read um but I had that a funny experience like this week where I wrote this newsletter about my rabbits and then a friend of mine asked a question that was clearly answered in the newsletter and I was like I I felt miffed, which is funny because (laughs) (laughs) the idea that like Mm -hmm. everyone should catch up on my newsletter before talking to me personally is like just hilarious and completely unrealistic.
1: (laughs) Totally. No, I do this like really ridiculous thing sometimes where like people will, like this is like a, and I, I know that I'm being ridiculous when this is happening, but like basically like if I come, if I, if I meet somebody, especially when I talk to somebody in like in my personal life who holds a belief that I have, I used to believe, but I have since rejected and then have like written about how I rejected that belief. I'm just like, no, we all decided, like we all collect, you know, like we all like came to the conclusion that we're over that actually now. <laughs> and like, and I'm just like, didn't you read the post? Like we all are past, but I'm like, no, no people are allowed to disagree. It's fine. It's fine. It's just like, but I'm always just like, did you, but did you read the post? Cause I, I made a really good point. <laughs>
0: It's so easy to do that. Yeah. Like personal realizations just sort of like emanate off of us and the people around us should just kind of catch them by osmosis. Awesome yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, you speak of self-delusion in your book and uh, you speak about it as an approach that has served you well in certain ways. And it's got me thinking about how we kind of ask artists both to um, believe in themselves and believe in their work, but to also kind of do that privately because I think people can be ridiculed or considered unserious if they're too public or too earnest about what they're doing and and that they take pride in it and that they believe in it. Um, I guess this pressure to perform humility feels like a piece um that I've seen so as someone who has always known how awesome you are how do you navigate that
1: yeah that's actually such a funny point I think that that's like um I see this all the time yeah I think I see this like a lot Where like like even from like other artists talking about how like cringe it is when like artists will like advertise their work and I'm like dude what are we supposed to do like I'm like actually like what like you know how hard this is like what are we supposed to do and like um and i do think that there's this like it's this it's this double bind so much too cuz like also like like grind culture is like so intense at this point like when like for artists and like there's just this like constant demand for output and also it has to be at this really high level of quality and also you have to be really like humble about it but also you better be getting like the subscriptions like really fat you know like or else like you're gonna you're not gonna pay rent and like uh so it's like it's just it's so many weird pressures and I think it becomes like even more intense like like I like you know like I do think that I do think it is more intense for like for like people who who like deal with maybe like you know I think I think it's more intense for women and like I think it's more intense for like queers a lot of the time or it's just like 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 people who have just been like historically marginalized by patriarchy or whatever. It's just like this, this, like people I've noticed really hate confident women, like really hate like women who like want, uh, who want any kind of attention or like think that they're dope. And like it just goes against a lot of like ideas of like, like traditional ideas of femininity, which I think are ridiculous because those are all made up anyway. But like, um, and I'm like, lots of like, lots of men are super humble and like lots of women are super confident. But like, um, but I think that it's, like, I think that a lot of the, like, the self-delusion piece is also, like, I think I literally just have to tell myself things about, like, myself and about, like, my everyday life that are just straight up not true, or I will be so bored that, like, I will, like, not want to do anything, you know? Like, like, and I think it's, like, like I, I can't help but feel like maybe, you know, decorating is a kind of self-delusion, like. Like makeup's a kind of self delusion, like, you know, like fashion's a kind of self delusion. Like, I'm just like constantly like decorate, like setting up, tinkering up this, like, this, like little world I want to live in and like writing my little stories in my head about what's actually happening in my like social life or whatever. So that I'm going to be like excited about going forward. And it's like, I kind of think about it as sort of the opposite of it's the like the mirror inverse of anxiety. Like, I kind of feel like if I, if I like sometimes I find when I'm like trying to be more objective about things, What's actually happening is I'm just like being a lot meaner to myself, like, you know, and like, and like believing things that are just like less fun and like less cool and like whatever about like myself and about the world around me. And I'm like, what about that? Like actually makes it more objective. It makes me think about like that, that like contra points bit where like, she's talking about like Natalie Wynn who has a YouTube channel called ContraPoints has this whole bit where he talks about masochistic epistemology, but how like there's this like weird cognitive distortion about like just actually thinking that like, if it hurts more and if it's uglier and if it's like more bland, then it's more true. And it's just like better or whatever. And like, I I have to kind of, I do feel like it might be self-delusion. I do feel like I kind of have to like reject that. Um, but it was like, yeah, I was like, at one point I was a teen and my aunt told me like, I was auditioning for a play that I wanted to get into and I was nervous about it, but my aunt was like, why do you you don't be nervous? And she was just like, you just like, who's better than you? You know? And it was like, she's like, sometimes it's just like, that's just like how she pumps herself up. She's just like, when she has to go do something that's like, she's nervous for, she's just like, who's better than me. And then she's like, can't, she's like, and I usually can't think of anybody (laughs) Like it's like, who's better than me for this thing? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there actually is anyone. So like, and like what makes them better, you know, like, like you know and it's just it's like I think that when we get into these like anxiety spirals or these like self-loathing spirals it's the exact same thought mechanism it's just going in a different direction and I do think there are like certain like social and cultural like pressures on people to like think mean things about themselves and like that's like somehow better and like gonna make you a better person than thinking like nice things about yourself but like if you just can like steer it in the direction of the nice things like you can really pump yourself up in a really efficient way. And like, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I spent a long time trying to see if beating myself up about everything would um, result in art and it did not. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, it's a really inefficient motivator. Shame is like a really like, it doesn't really work for you.
1: It can work apparently like there are studies on this like psychologically or whatever. And like, it works fine for a really short period of time. And then Mm. it tends to like, it tends to like, like burn out, And then the, like, usually the effects of like shame are actually like, like uh, the opposite of what you actually want, like holistically, you know, like, because it's like, it feels bad to, to hate yourself.
0: It does. It does. (laughs) And it like, is just as likely to be exaggerated as like a helpful self-delusion is totally. Um, this, uh, this brings me to how you grapple in this book with the need for your pain to be extraordinary in a sense, right? Like, Mm uh, more and bigger. And, um, I remember when I was in my early twenties, probably my late twenties too, it felt like my pain was what was unique and interesting about me to a large extent. Um, and I was wondering, I guess, like, do you have thoughts on where this tendency comes from? And I'm curious, like, um, I wonder if we're, we're just, we've always sort of been like this and there's like a contemporary or, or is there something about um, this moment we're in, like the beginning of the digital era that might have, I don't know, sort of encouraged like performances around uh, being in pain.
1: That's such a, yeah. I think that's like, I think that a lot of those, I think all of those play some part in it. I think that there is a, I was, cause I was just thinking about the same question again recently, cause I've been having like some weird flare ups of some like physical health stuff again. And I'm like, I'm like, like, oh no, I'm so sick, you know, and like, which is like, I mean, I am sick, like I am just straight up like have been feeling sick. But then I spent two days doing like really intensive, awesome, extensive outdoor like exercise and getting like a lot of fresh air and like, moving my body a lot and like low impact, but like long duration, like, you know, whatever, getting like 20,000 steps and like swimming in lakes and stuff like that. And I felt fantastic. Like, you know, I just felt like all, like most of the problems went away in like two or three days of that. And like, I have consistently had this same, this like same thought process over and over where I'm just like, exercise won't solve my problem. And then I exercise and I'm like, Oh no, it does solve the problem. Cause I like, I just want, like, I actually genuinely want the problem to be bigger than like, I just need to exercise more. Like, because it's like, it's not like I'm like, it's not like I just sit around all day. Like I do get like an hour of like low impact exercise a day, at least. Like, you know, I would go for walks or whatever, but like, I probably need to be doing more like three or whatever, you know, like like closer to that. Cause like, I, I'm a writer. So like mostly I'm inside like a little gremlin and I need to like counterbalance it by doing something else. So like, um and it just, but the, so like sometimes I, sometimes the way that I think about it, which is very narrative and not scientific at all, is that I almost feel like my like, my misery has a kind of agency. Like it's almost like being possessed by a demon, you know, like it's just like, and that like, like I think about how like rabies, when animals have rabies, the reason why they're afraid of water apparently is because like, like rabies gets diluted in water. So they're like, and there's this weird thing, like this is theory about rabies, which is that basically if like a dog's foaming at the mouth because it has rabies, it's going to be afraid of water because it's less likely to transmit the virus if it has water in its mouth. So it's like, the virus actually has a kind of will. It's like, you know, it's, it's exerting a kind of will over the animal. Um, And like, sometimes I think about like my misery that way. And like, just like that, it it has a kind of will and it's trying to self-perpetuate itself. And like, so for, and I I think, I think of it that way, it's a sort of helpful self-delusion. I think about it that way because it's easier to fight it. You know, it's easier to just be like, just be like, no, like, you know, like I've got to, like, it's a, it's a bad guy and I need to fight with it. You know, like and like, I need to like outsmart it and outwit it. And like, it like the thing that will make it better is exercise. And that's why it's telling me that like exercise is impossible. And your problems are so much bigger than that. Like your problems are so much more intense than you just need to eat less sugar. Like, you know, like, and like, well, maybe, and then that's not the only thing, but like, in addition to like taking your medication and like, you know, like and doing your therapy, you also need to like eat well and like go outside and like exercise and stuff. Um. So like, I like, so I think that, like sometimes I, sometimes I wonder if that's like a part of it. It's just like, that maybe like a function of depression is the urge to self-perpetuate it itself. And like, um, cause like, yeah, like all of my like de- depressive intrusive thoughts are literally things about how like other people are bad and you shouldn't hang out with them, even though like socializing helps, like, you know, socializing is like one of the things that helps and like connection is fake. And like, you know, like love isn't real. And like, you know, all these like other things that I'm just like connection and love and like community are like, also things that help when I'm like miserable um but i I do think that like that there's this that there's a part of the, the these like inc- incredibly part of the like incredibly atomized i think like nature of like of like the you know late capitalist realism that we're like currently living in is this like is this thing of just like we're all so cut off from each other like we're like we're more like we're more connected in this like very like artificial way but also like more like actually like atomized and cut off than we've ever been throughout like you know much of human history um and uh and like that is that is because that's like an effective strategy to like extract profit from people you know like it's just like that's like that's like how that how that all functions and like um and i think that like constantly navel gazing this like consistent and constant navel gazing also like ends up being a like effective strategy in order to like stop us from doing things like unionizing our workplaces and like you know like actually like combating climate change effectively or whatever you know if it's just like no you feel bad because you haven't figured out what's like personally specifically wrong with you yet and so like if you just can do that then like then everything will get better and it's just like it's just like maybe that's part of it but also maybe like if I like talk to my neighbors more and like you know like had more effective you know like maybe a lot of the other stuff would sort of fall away. So, um, so I do think a lot of it is just like a byproduct of like capitalism. And I don't think it's necessarily just like millennials being like, being like self-important dweebs or whatever, because there's something about us that makes us all self-important dweebs. Maybe we're a little bit self-important dweebs, but mostly we're self-important dweebs because of the situation that we're in. And it's not entirely our fault. Um, and, uh, and there's a way out, you know,
0: mm-hmm. I like chef's kiss. That was, (laughs) that was really good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember a friend of mine, we were talking about like having just like this super important like outsider identity, you know? And I thought my friend summed it up so well when they said, when they were younger, it was practically like, well, other people need to drink water to stay alive, but like I'm right. queer. <laughs> <laughs> it's queer to be dehydrated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and all these things like, yeah, the, you know, the way that depression like whispers in our ear that like, yeah, nothing will work, not exercise, not sleeping properly, not seeing friends. And like, it's, I finally pretty recently, um, stopped fighting exercising so hard and yeah it turns out that what a lot of experts are saying (laughs) there's something to it it's
1: shocking like it's it's shocking and it's so it makes me feel so stupid because I literally was just like that's not gonna help for like so long and then like and then you do yoga for like two weeks straight and you're like oh it does help (laughs) Oh my God. Like, you know, like, like in meditating is the other one that I was just like, it's not going to do what you sitting on the floor for 10 minutes. No way. That's not gonna. And then I sit on the floor for 10 minutes for like three days in a row. And by the third day, I'm like, my brain has knit itself back together. (laughs) Like I actually just needed to sit down and shut up for 10 minutes a day. Like (laughs) the incredible life altering power of just sitting down and shutting up for 10 minutes.
0: I mean, I wish that I had time for 10 minutes of silence a day. I'm way too busy scrolling (laughs) on the internet, but yeah, I've heard that it does great
1: things. Yeah. I just, I, what are you talking about? I have to like sit cramping my neck up for 21 hours a day. (laughs)
0: Exactly. (laughs) Super busy schedule. Um, One, the chapter in your book that was like the most hilarious and also completely horrifying was the tree planting chapter. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, And what I found almost more horrifying is that you went back. Yeah. I went back like four times or something crazy like that. Like I just like kept on going back for like five years. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Tell me like, why was it, was it financial or was there something else that you got out of your time there? I
1: think that it was like, well, okay. Part of it was like the pursuit of finances. Although I did. Like by the end of my career, I was just like, Hmm, I am like the most highly experienced solid, like mid baller that I know, you know, like low mid baller that I know. Like, I'd like, and it's a, if this is tree planter terminology, if you're not a tree planter, there's like low ballers, there's mid ballers, there's high ballers and high ballers make a lot of money. Mid ballers are like, you know, I could like, and that's probably where I was most of the time. Like I could plant, I'd always plant 1500 trees, no matter like what was going on. Like, you know, like it's just, it could be a sleet storm. I will plant you 1500 trees, best land you've ever seen in your life. I will plant you 1500 trees and I'll have a really good day. Like, you know, like the hardest, rockiest, crappiest land ever, probably plant like 700 trees, but like, you know, but I'll also like, I won't complain about it. And like, um, like, so this was, and this was just kind of like the end of my, the end of my planting career. This is what it looked like. So like, and I just sort of never got, I, I, I got up to the point where I was like planting 2000 trees a day. And then it was just so hard. I like, didn't want to stay up there. So I just like brought it back down to like where it was like maintainable. And then I just kind of stayed there. But I always had big dreams about like this year, I'm going to go back and I'm going to be a super high baller and be planting like 3000 trees every single day. And I'm going to make, you know, $400 every day. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to be able to buy a golden horse and I'll ride it every day to the fair. And like, this was like, this was like kind of the thought process that I was having. And like, when I was like in my twenties and I was super income insecure and I was like in, like I was in university and I was just super broke. That was always the, like the dream. But I think that like really what got me was like, you're out in the middle of nowhere no one can talk to you it's like it's quiet as heck like it's just like the the like the very fast-paced lifestyle of like normal like city life is just like not a thing and like um and even like whatever I've lived in the country too and like there's still is there's still internet out there you know like there's still I'm still constantly getting like pings of messages or whatever and that just like does not happen in the bush you do not have wi-fi you do not have like cell phone access it's like you can't like be you cannot be seen one second just a quick cough. So, um, and then like, and then you're out in the, and like, you, it's not like you're not doing a lot of stuff because you are, but you're doing a lot of like, you're, you're, you know, you're waking up very early and you're going, you're kind of doing the same thing every day. So there was something that I found very like mentally relaxing about like that, you know, like, you know, when, when people talk about how, like at least prisons, three hots and the cots or cot or whatever, I was like, at least I like, don't have to pay my, I don't have to pay rent. I don't have to like, like, you know, I don't have to pay for groceries. I like, don't have to like be constantly worrying about like, how am I going to pay for the next thing? Cause I'm like, I live in a wet bag in the woods and I like, there's someone else makes my food and I have a job. And like, that's often better than like, i than, like, you know, my life was actually like set up in my, in my twenties. And I was just a complete chaos dragon and like nothing was ever set up properly. So like, um but the, yeah, the downside is that it's the most horrifyingly difficult manual labor you can imagine. So like, like it's, it's weird that that was where I went to kind of like chill out and like reset and like rest my mind. But like it was, and I think that part of it is also that exercise piece of just like, even when it was like maddeningly difficult, it's like, it feels good to walk for 10 hours a day. Like it just like, like hiking for 10 hours a day is like, it's, it's bad for your body, but it's also like, like good in another way too. Usually the first month and a half would be great. And in the last
0: two weeks I would just start falling apart because it was too much, but, um, but yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Like it's, it it feels like, yeah, the internet and uh, cell phone signals, like it's, yeah, they've really engineered them quite well to be so compelling that, that being away from that um, is very attractive and yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to become a tree planter though. I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I wouldn't recommend (laughs) it. I wouldn't
1: recommend it. It's like, it's like, I do kind of feel like, I do kind of feel like people in their late teens, early twenties, if you feel like doing it, anyone listening, doing it at least once, I think is like actually a really good idea. I really think it's like, I really think it was like a huge coming of age thing for me. For anyone who doesn't know, tree planting is like, it's it's, it's an intense manual labor. It's piece work so You get paid per tree, which means that you can make a lot of money or you can make minimum wage by doing it for doing the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. And usually you're out in a bush camp. So it's like about a hundred people, three hours from the closest town, in the middle of nowhere in like, you know, any province in Canada, but like the biggest operations are in like Ontario and BC. Um, BC pays better, Ontario is like easier land. So like, um, that's like, that's the general breakdown. And, um, and it's like in your reforesting clear cuts, basically that like used to be that have been cut down to make toilet paper or whatever. And like, I do think that it was like, I think that like the, the personality changed in me before I went the first time versus like when I came back, it was like night and day. Like, I really feel like there was this, like, there was just this, this, it just, it taught me how to work at all. You know, like how to like, how to like work hard, how to like, how to also like not take my own my own like pain so seriously, I think was also like really important, like not take my own, like, and like, not take my own narratives about like how, like, I can't do it. Like, so quite, like, quite so seriously. I just like, didn't take myself as seriously after. And then also like nothing ever quite felt as hard, like, which is not to say that I don't still avoid hard things like, cause I do, but at least I like know consciously that it's like yeah, walking 15 minutes to go get like chips at the depth is like not hard. Like it's just like, I don't want to do it, but it's not hard. Like planting three like you know, three thousand trees in a swamp is hard. but, like, like, you know, walking forty five minutes to get to my grandma's house
0: is like not hard, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah. It sounds like it gave you a lot of perspective. and uh, yeah, yeah. there's definitely like a a romance to that a bit. like i did I did cherry picking for a bit a short bit, but yeah, it was um there was something about just like the quietness of the camps and being up at dawn and yeah it was uh, smelling like pesticides at the end was not the best part of it but yeah Yeah, you eat
1: a lot of dirt (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) yeah you talked about dirt like under calluses that like became a part of you at some point.
1: Totally. Yeah. You get the dirty hands and then your calluses grow over the dirt and it's called perma dirt. And it like falls oh. off like three months later when like your skin finally totally regenerates. And like, yeah, you just, you could, you could wash it until you're, you'd have to like, you'd have to like hurt yourself to like get the actual dirt to come off. Um, it got really intense, but yeah, I think the, like the, the, oh. the quietness of it. And then also just like, it's just, it's like, I do think that it's, it's like, you know, it makes you understand like, oh yeah, I'm a primate, you know, like it's like, and it's like in a way that's kind of nice, like not in a, like, I feel like not in a, like a super like Joe Rogan, like I'm going to only going to eat like liver and like run run around or whatever kind of way. But like, but in more of a, like, a, like I'm an animal and I have a relationship to land, you know, like I have a relationship. And like, also I do think that there's like a way in which like a lot of people who are tree planters talk about, Developing this really of, like, of like, it's like my job, like as an animal, to like take care of the planet, you know, like that's like that's like my, like, I am the kind of animal that like caretakes the planet, like, and like it feels really good to like caretake the planet, and like, whatever, and like tree planting is a really incomplete, imperfect, like, way to caretake, and like it's it's got a lot of problems, but like it's like, but I, I it is better than not doing it at all, and like, um, and it's uh a lot of it's not an environmentalist job but a lot of people come out of it like as environmentalists who like want to take care of the planet and stuff
0: yeah I think um when I was like 18 19 I worked and volunteered with Greenpeace and um went up to Fort McMurray and like I think that it's one thing to hear about something like a clear cut and or even just see a picture Uh, but when you're actually there uh like there's just it's unforgettable like to just see what it looks like when we just strip the land away and um yeah and and feeling like you have a small piece in um repairing that there's that definitely there's some power there for sure totally there was this dance in your book between uh motivation and desire There are times where your actions contradict or obscure what you're trying to get out of a situation or a relationship. And it really allows us as the reader to be in on the confusion and the angst and the frustration that this causes. And one thing I'm grappling with as I age is like, whether it's possible to close the gap between intention and action, like,
1: Mm.
0: Does does self-awareness that they're far apart make it easier to bring them together? Or are we just somewhat, I don't know, are we going to continue to kind of grapple with the disconnect or the distance between intention and action?
1: Wow. Yeah. That's a really beautiful way of putting that. Um, there's this like one, like, it's funny because like I was writing about these things just being like, kind of like, uh uh-huh, isn't it silly how like, you know, you think someone's cute, but also you're like doing you know, like I think about this one scene in the book where I'm just like, there's a guy I really have a crush on who's like clearly trying to hook up with me, but I'm just like doing the, a, a slate of just the unsexiest things possible. And like, it's like, and it's just in my brain, I'm just kind of like, I am the most annoying person ever to hook up with, like welcome to my life. Um, but like, it, but what I think is funny is that like, I actually had somebody who read the book brought up this like there's this like, one like psychology framework that I think is like really interesting it's called like like parts and like parts work about how like this, and it's like um, this idea that like that like we've got like that people have to a varying degrees like you know huge gigantic spectrum of like how disconnected these all are is like basically like your personality is like literally subdivided to a certain extent and like you've got like parts of you who want, who want things and are like big adventurers and like, want to like go out and find things and like have experiences or whatever. And then there are parts of you that like really want to protect you from like anything bad ever happening ever. And then like, and I, I like, and so I, I think that a lot of the time that's the, that's the like, the, like the, the conversation that's going on. Like, you know, is this like motivation and intention and like motivation in my actions is like, what, what it feels like what I want, like, you know, like the, the, the part of me that wants things and is like driven forward that like, that's the part that's looking out for me, but it's actually the part of me that's trying to sabotage myself. That's like looking out for me because that's the part that's like, that's like, no, 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 no. Like if we try things, we might get really disappointed. So like, we don't try like too hard and we like stay here in our like, like nice, comfortable little zone and like, don't like extend outwards too far because like because out there something might be disappointing or like frustrating or hurt or whatever. Um, And like, and like these two parts are like, often just like literally having a fist fight, like, you know, like just trying to like, trying to like do things. Cause it's like, and like rationally I can tell as like, you know, an, you know, a full adult who like, you know, has all my faculties and is like, you know, relatively well-therapized and like sober and well medicated is like that. I, I know that I'm just like, I'm like, come on. I feel like I'm kind of like dragging two kids. Like, I'm just like, come on, like, you know, like we're going to do the thing. And like, I understand that it's like, we have to like extend out a little bit in order to like grow and like get, and like, you know, have our lives be better or whatever. But it's like, I'm constantly negotiating with like the, the parts of me that want to expand, want expansion and like change. And the parts of me that don't want anything to change ever. And want to keep everything really safe all the time. And like, I think that's a really like productive and interesting framework. And like that particular framework in psychology is like all about like, just literally just like negotiating with them more and just being like, how can we like compromise? How can we like, can we like, you know, try to like, and like compromise ends up being like, literally thinking about them like they're different people and being like, how can we like get them to work with each other a bit more effectively? And like, um, like thinking about it, like it's a meeting and we all got to get to a point of consensus so we can like all move forward together. And like, So that's something that's like, that I've, I've been like experimenting with a little bit lately. Um, And, uh, and yeah, I think it it does sound like it's like, like very productive and it does sound like it makes sense. I think that like, it's one of those things where like in theory, that's great in practice. It's still really hard. (laughs) It's still like really hard to like, be like, be like, I like, I've also been thinking a lot about how often I think I fall into this thing where I'm like, I plan the perfect way to do things. Like I'm going to do things exactly this way. And I just like plan to do them. And then like, but like, ultimately, like there is no like planning the perfect way to do things. And then like being the person who does this plan, there's just like moments and you make decisions, you know, like in those, in those moments you just make decisions, and it's just about like, and your life is really who you are as a person and your whole life. is really just like the sum total of all these decisions that you made. So it's like trying to actually think less and just like, act more like in the moment and just like, and just like not worrying too much about what the right, you know, like not even really worrying that much about like what the right action is, but just also just being like, being like what feels right here. And like, what, like, do I actually like, what do I actually want? Let's like move towards that. That also like often um, like I, it helps just if, just like thinking less and doing more.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I, <laughs> at some point I realized like every time I started a healthy habit, I was like, okay, I am literally going to do this every single day until I die. And then the first day that I didn't do it, I was like, well, everything is ruined. Like I can never do that again. It's (laughs) over. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, it turns out uh, that you could just, you could just start doing it again after you Mm -hmm. stop and (laughs) as many times as necessary. Totally. So... There's this phrase, uh, that I think will stick with me from your book, which is that bitch potential. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. I want to ask, like, I mean, I have mixed feelings about potential, right? Like the expectation of passing certain milestones at certain ages or that life doesn't count unless certain things are achieved or or the idea that like potential can just be taken and lost by um, illness or something like that. I was wondering now that you've published two collections of poetry, a memoir, and according to your email auto reply are slamming out a novel draft, (laughs) (laughs) has your relationship to the word potential shifted? Um, so I think so.
1: I think a little bit. I think that I maybe am like, I do feel like I think about potential and my frustrations with potential sort of exist on like, there's like potential on a macro level and then potential on a micro level. And like on a macro level, I almost feel a bit more chill about things. Like I, I do feel like I'm relatively good at like moving towards and like, like in a, in a productive way, like long-term major projects. Like, I think that's something that I I'm better at doing. It's like, it's like the day-to-day that like really stresses me out. Like, you know, like, it's just like, it's when you wake up and you're just like, you're like trying to manage, like, how do I answer all my emails and like clean my bathroom and like go get mustard and like, you know, like, and then also write these things that I have to write and like, do all the other work that I have to do. Like, you know, and like, what order do I do them in? And like, and like, and then like that, and like, how do I stay motivated the whole time? And like, how do I like stay excited about them? And like, I know that each of these things is like building towards that bigger thing. And like, but like, but I, I, it's, it's so hard to have that perspective shift, you know, like, um, and then also like, Like on a micro level, like often there's little things that, like, maybe don't even really, in a, they might not even actually contribute to the major thing. Like, whether or not my bathroom is super clean actually might not have anything to do with whether or not I can write a novel at all. Like, actually, that might, there might be no connection. Like, as long as the bathroom is usable, like, you know, like even remotely, it's, it's like, I can probably still write the novel. Like it doesn't have to be clean, but like, I would like to, it would make me feel better. I would feel like, feel like my, like overall, like my cortisol levels would be lower. If like, I could also have like a clean and organized apartment while I'm also like doing these like big projects and like, um, and those things I really struggle with. Like I have a terrible time, like housekeeping. I have an awful, I, I wrote something about myself, my, my substack about it, about how, like, I really struggle with stuff like that. I like, I struggle with like, how do I feed myself in a reasonable way? How do I like how do I like keep up with all the messages from all the people that I love, you know, that I want to talk to. And like, with like, well, also like having a even remotely productive day every day. And like, like, those are the things that really, really bug me. And like, um, and I think that like that at that particular point of the memoir, I was like talking about how, like, if, if my, um, like part of what bothers me on this like micro level is that I think a lot of those little things, there's so much moral weight to them. A lot of the time, like there's so much like, and there's so much like weird structural societal moral weight to like, whether or not my like house is clean, whether or not, like I am keeping in regular contact with like people who love me, you know, like, and like want to talk to me and stuff like that. And like, often that feels like a drain on my energy resources to like work towards these like big things that I want in my life. And then I feel even worse morally because I'm like, I'm like, I'm so selfish. All I care about is like writing a novel and I don't, so I didn't call my grandma back or whatever, you know, like, and that like makes me feel like a bad person. (laughs) And like, so, and then, and then that constant negotiation in my head, I'm just like, I just don't want to, I don't want to have to think about it. I want to like, I want to at least be able to, cause like I'm now I'm thinking about it so much that I can't clean my bathroom. <laughs> like I can't, and I can't write my grandma back and I can't write my novel. And like, you know, and like, so, um, so I do think that like, that like on a, on a macro level, I feel good about potential, but I feel like that was never really my problem. I think on a micro level, I am still trying to figure out how to make the kinds of sacrifices that I think I need to make in order to like make space for the things that are actually important in my, like, in my like day to day. And like, I do think that it might just be a matter of like, I don't actually have time for all those things. Like, you know, like I'd actually like, don't, there's just actually isn't time for all of those things. And something's got to give, and I got to figure out which are the things that have to give, like, you know, like, do I just have to shell out money to have somebody else come and clean my house? Like, do I have to, like, do I just have to like throw my phone in the, river and be like, I'll call people back on Wednesday afternoons. And like, you know, you have to wait until Wednesday afternoon. And then I'm going to call everybody back on Wednesday afternoon. You know, like, am I going to have to just like, or am I just going to have to like, let most of my <laughs> close relationships shrivel away and be like, I'm, ai just live in a tower and I'm a writer. And like, you have to live with that. Like maybe one day I'll write you into a novel and that's how we'll hang out with, with each other, you know? Um, so And I do think that like right now I'm still on the level of sacrifice and I don't know if that's the right way to do it, but that's the only thing mathematically I think makes any sense at this point. Cause I keep on trying to like sit down and like schedule it out and numbers aren't adding up. So, um, yeah, that's where I'm at.
0: (laughs) You know, I think I find that kind of reassuring and I think a lot of people would, right. Because (laughs) I mean, yeah, I could have a, perfectly clean house and not have a podcast, you know, or like there's, there's yeah, this constant juggle and yeah, I think it's, I mean, i for one, I'm really glad that you have found ways to fit these, uh, this writing into your life because I really, really enjoyed your memoir. Oh, that's so kind of you here. Yeah. It's neglecting other things. a great excuse for never doing laundry again yeah, like, <laughs> totally. that's why we really need our friends to read our newsletters is because like that's it like yeah. this. <laughs> I just threw my underwear out and bought
1: new ones guys like you need to like you guys need to read it please
0: <laughs> well Tara I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today this has been wonderful yeah thank you so much Kira this has really been very fun thank you and I love all the
1: work you're doing and I'm so excited to keep following your work
0: Oh, thank you so much. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so I'm on
1: uh, all relevant and irrelevant social media at girthgirl, G-I-R-T-H-G-I-R-L. It's girth like my first um, book. Not, I'm not a size queen. Um, and then uh, the other thing is uh, taramagowanross.substack.com. So it's just my full name. So it's T-A-R-A-M-C-G-O-W-A-N-R-O-S-S. Dot .substack.com is my newsletter. Um and then you can also
0: find me at girthgirl.ca that's my website. And that's pretty much it. Excellent. Thanks again. This has been Kier Here, a podcast where I interview weirdo artists, writers and makers about what they do. I'm your host, Kier Adrian Gray. You can sign up for my newsletter to receive new episodes and other strange goodies straight to your inbox at Keir.substack.com. That's k i e r dot Until next time.